0: Welcome. Uh, I'm Jerry Richardson. I'll introduce myself a little more as we go along and make sure you you know and the place you think you should be. My assigned topic is burnout and overseas workers. Uh, I'm interested a little bit in who you are because that will influence us telling my son whether I use my academic talk, my layperson's talk, or somewhere in between or what you would like. How many of you are medically trained people now? So, a high percentage. How many of you are related to a medically trained person? And that's why you're here. Okay. Um, So, how many of you have already served cross-culturally internationally? A lot of you. Okay. So, I may be preaching to the choir here, which is going to be interesting. Uh, How many of you are wanting or hoping and haven't yet served cross-culturally internationally? So... The few that haven't served are wanting to do that. Uh, It would help me to get an idea of what you want, um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, There's actually a lot of reasonable research to talk about in this area. Uh, What I plan to do is to upload my academic slide set to the website so you can read anything you want to about what I've pulled together from literature and from other things. Uh, What I would prefer to do is to talk about things that really are important to you that maybe either I or there are other people in the room who have experience can address in in some sense. Let me kind of give you an overview of what I'll do, and then you guide me. Please feel free to interrupt. Uh, I I stay awake during my own talking better if people ask me questions. Uh, if I'm wandering off, Linda, my wife, who's sitting here, will give me a signal, and Poppy, who I've known for 20 years, maybe she'll give me a signal. Uh, But I I want this to be what you hoped you would get. And without asking each of you, I have to take a crack at it based on what I put in the little blurb, and that is to review a little bit about the epidemiology, a little bit about what burnout is, and to try to focus some on... Primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. That is true prevention, prevention after there's already trouble, and prevention or intervention after there's big trouble. Uh, Does that sound like an okay outline for most of you? And those of you that have already served, um, you can correct me and stop me anytime and redirect me. I'm a missionary kid, one that mostly grew up. I was born in Nigeria. My parents were missionaries. My mom was the first medical missionary appointed by the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board to Africa back in 1945. She was a pioneer woman missionary, as they were in those days. The woman who delivered me, Martha Stewart Gilliland, was the second woman appointed by that board to serve in Africa. And I was her first j- delivery there. Um, my dad was a minister uh, working, uh, supporting churches, supervising churches, teaching preaching, and encouraging, who probably the last 25 years of his career fell in love with a group called the Fulani of the Fulbe, who are in that part of Africa. And since he was a country boy himself, he spent his time walking out to the village and visiting and getting to know them. I went to boarding school in the fourth grade. I'm the second of four. I was one of those kids that boarding school was not a good thing for. You know, I cried the first year and I'm sure it was terrible for my mom to have to leave me while I was crying. My brother, who was uh, three years younger, never turned to hairs like this is the best thing ever. So each kid is different, obviously, in those kinds of things. Uh, I came back to the states to finish school in South Carolina, finished high school. Uh, one of the um, culturally shocking experiences I remember happening was I was sitting in my high school class. When John F. Kennedy was shot, came across the intercom, and there was cheering in my classroom. Some of you are old enough to remember those days. Uh, Coming from Africa, this this is a really crazy country here that we're doing this kind of thing. I went to college in Birmingham. That's where I met Linda. Uh, We married in 1969 after my first year of medical school in Baltimore. I, I was the token... CORE Southerner in Johns Hopkins that year. I think they accept one a year or something like that to kind of meet a quota. Uh, I had a great time in school, did internal medicine there for a couple of years, went to Rochester, Minnesota, Mayo to do more internal medicine, was forced kicking and screaming against my will to do a psych rotation because the woman who set up rotations for internists made me. And I, I volunteered to do CCU, anything but psychiatry. Well, I was at the end of three years of intensive internal medicine training, all hospital, and I walked into a place where I was going to be paid to sit down and get to know people. So I was converted. Went and did a psych residency, and that's what I've been doing ever since. My involvement with this has been starting as a kid. I remember, in retrospect, missionaries that I grew up with, they were my aunts and uncles who were severely burned out. Uh, As I got... Finished with my medical training, I started volunteering with the denomination that we belong to with, for missionary care, and we we'll traveled to Congo and Ecuador and other places, and saw a lot of this that was not identified very well. Uh, became involved in the Mental Health Missions Conference, which meets next weekend in Angola, Indiana. If any of you want another conference that's really great about addressing uh, missionary care, it's like my Internet security is talking to me. Um, And then became involved in the Christian Medical and Dental Association uh, Commission on Continuing Medical and Dental Education, which has these conferences alternating Thailand and and, uh, uh, Africa. And at those conferences was sort of the camp counselor for quite a long time and got to the point of knowing and seeing a lot of this phenomenon. Let me tell you a couple of stories um, from this experience. Uh, When I was a kid, I clearly remember one of the missionary family who basically never did anything. This person basically stayed in their home. They ate and slept. I think they had a job, but none of us kids could ever figure out if this person really had a job because they never seemed to do anything. They were always sort of maybe making it to church and maybe making it to missionary prayer meetings. But year after year after year, uh, then some, they'd come home on what was supposedly be a furlough, and they'd come back looking worse, more exhausted and more tired because, of course, home assignment is not really rest for most uh, missionaries or cross-cultural workers. Uh, it wasn't until I grew up and kind of got some thinking going that I realized this person really wasn't lazy, I don't think. The missionary community tolerated it. I'm not sure that was a good thing in retrospect. Uh, But this person, I think, was just totally burned out. And there was no way in those days you could go back to the States and tell your church that you were burned out. I mean, not going to happen. The churches did not understand that concept, didn't understand what to do with it. And uh, maybe we're better today. I hope we're better today. But I'm not sure how much better we are off today with people who come home and need what people need. We went to Papua New Guinea for three months, uh, helping out short-term with Wycliffe. I was helping out in the medical clinic to give somebody a break. And the same thing happened. I remember uh, a compound, some teams, in which there was one member of the team that seemed to never lift a finger, never did a thing. And as I got to know the situation better, it had been accepted that this person was just non-functional. Uh, and they were somehow considered to be better off non-functional there than being non-functional back in the, in the home country. Uh, intervention was not one of the things that I was able to do in a three-month short-term thing, but I remember uh, it becoming more and more clear to me that something was really the matter, that most of the time most people just look the other way. Uh After being back in the States for a while, I've consulted with some different mission agencies, and a couple was sent to me who had come from a a very intense time in Africa when for two consecutive terms, they were struggling with demands that were so far beyond the resources available that they just kept wearing down and down and down. And eventually, they crashed and burned and came back to the States and were sent to me at Mayo for a consult. Uh, One of the couple was depressed clinically. Actually, it's easier to treat depression than burnout. It's a clinical syndrome that we really know how to treat well, and most people can get a good response if they'll follow recommendations. They were both burned out, and that's when I first learned, and I'm convinced of this, that when somebody has totally exhausted themselves, recovery usually takes a couple of years. Okay, Not a couple of months, not six months, not a year, but a couple of years. And if you think about those of you that have worked cross-culturally, the missionary life cycles, where do you ever get two years when you could actually be restored? And I was able to talk this agency into, into saying, these are valuable people. You want them back? You want them back whole? Give them time. And they did. And they recovered, and they've had another 15 years, I think, of really effective service. But understanding that this phenomenon of burnout is a totally different uh, phenomenon than clinical depression or grief or some of the other things that we experience in life that Uh, have a life cycle of their own. This is a very long life cycle phenomenon. And one of the mistakes I think people make about themselves and that we make about other people is because after about six months they look pretty good. You know, they're going to church, they're being more active, they're putting some weight back on maybe or taking some off depending on which way they went. And they look pretty good. And so we start expecting them to teach Sunday school and, you know, go deputizing and do summer camps, and that just stretches out the length of recovery. Uh, Another situation, another story, and many of you can identify with this, is a a young man we had known since he was a kid who was uh, in a war zone, and actually one of those where you're lying on the floor and bullets are flying over you back and forth, and That happened long enough so that he just basically said, I'm out of here, which is probably a pretty smart thing. Uh, It took him at least two years uh, to get back on his feet with given time by his organization to recover. Uh, I had to do some tussling with the organization about how hard they were pushing to get him back in the saddle. Now, isn't it really better to get back in the saddle and get going again? Sometimes, some individuals, that's the best way to go. But for, mo- for most people, uh, t- healing takes time. And Poppy's shaking her head, so she agrees with me. She's seen this uh, over and over in lots of different settings. Uh, so the phenomenon of burnout is, is a different phenomenon than talking about treating primary depression or anxiety, though they often go together. And I thought those stories would give you a little idea of the kinds of things that you've seen, you've experienced, I've seen, and some of the context of what happens. I'm going to, until I see people starting to nod off, and Linda, you'll help me watch for that, I'm going to use a few of my slides to try to highlight some things that I think the slides can actually illustrate well. Uh, I know that about, about 10 slides into most talks, my brain is somewhere else, and so if I see that happening, I'll I'll darken the slides like that, and we'll start over somewhere else. um, How many of you that have served, most of you raised your hands, how many of you have heard that phrase from your colleagues? A lot of you. And I'm in deep trouble now because Harold Adolf walked in, and he really knows this topic and what should be done about it. In fact, I was going to tell part of your story, if it's okay with you later, in terms of... uh, an example of how how to persevere. And if I forget, Linda, remind me when I get to that point. Uh, we really live in attention, if you think about it. Now, I think God actually allows us to live in tension in this life in order to keep us focused and humble. Uh, if it was all really cut and dry like most obsessives like me want, we would think we got it cornered and we got it figured out and we just do that and everything's fine. But, you know, at least theologically, he's kind of got grace and works, and I mean, the tensions are there all over the place. Uh, we live in a tension in our work, professionally. And the tension is we are committed to putting our patients first. That's what we profess. That their needs and their, uh, that's what a profession is for us. And at the same time, we are human beings who uh frequently don't recognize it early enough or get dealt with appropriately as if we're human beings. So we do want to be useful and productive. And generally, we look down on people who we think are slothful. Now, I think we have to be careful there because the more and more people that I meet who, are, who someone thought were slothful really aren't that. There are people who are that, but not a lot, I don't think. I think the people, like I talked about earlier, who spend years and years on the field never lifting a finger, it's not sloth. They didn't get there by being slothful. It's burnout or some, some other problem that's significant. So there are two definitions um, that you can tuck away whichever one you like. One is a mechanical one, which is, you know, you run a engine at twice the RPM it's supposed to run for 10 hours, and what's going to happen? It's going to burn out. It's going to die. That's one definition. And, of course, if we really think that uh, pushing ourselves beyond what God has created us to be as human beings is the right thing to do, we're vulnerable to that. Another definition is the rocket science definition, which you've heard, and that is the fuel is expended. The demands on the system clearly exceed the supply of energy. And um, one of the interesting phenomenon for medical professionals, all of you who are medical professionals, that I do do some sleep medicine as well, is that you have no idea how tired you are. Uh, Let me say that again because I think it's true. You have no idea how tired you are. And the reason I know that is because when medical professionals are actually taken off of work, for three to four months for a knee problem or a hip problem or some medical problem, if they try to go back to work just like they were doing before, they're totally exhausted for a month or two. And that's because we all build up a, a tolerance for fatigue, a tolerance for you just got to keep going no matter what you feel like, a tolerance for uh, ignoring the feedback loops into our bodies and just pushing and pushing, pushing. We live. Most professionals live on the edge of this quite often, and it turns out I'm not going to do a lot of statistics, but in in Canada, the most recent survey was that of their general practitioners in Canada. 48% had faced this at some time in the last few years. 48%, so almost one half. In the U.S., it's one in it's one in three. During a career, one in three medical professionals will get to the point of being totally expended. Uh, and uh, in some disciplines, it's higher than others. The, the scary thing is that for people who are Christian medical cross-cultural workers, um, the risk is even higher. And yet, I don't know that we... Look around us and try to keep an eye out for when is our colleague drowning and when do they need some time. Partly because I remember this is a resident. You know, if I send Joe home because he's looked like he's going to crack, who's going to do his work? You know. And so there's this bind about caring for each other and setting limits and. Uh, so if somebody can work on it 30%, well, that's sure better than if they leave and i got to pick up their 30%. That's the kind of phenomenon we get stuck in in limited resource settings where we expect to keep going 100%. Um, now, seldom do we admire and encourage those who maintain margin of energy and time. Uh, we don't often select our Christian heroes from people who demonstrate this well. Now here's where I can stop and tell a story of one Christian hero who does. And Harold, if I get it wrong, you can correct me. But I remember, I think it was at your, um, your uh, talk for us at Christian Medical and Dental Association as the Stuart lecturer a few years ago. When you mentioned, because the challenge to the Stuart lecturer is to speak to the younger generation and And how do you do it? How do you persevere for 30 years? What is it that God has done in your life? How have you partnered with God? And one of the things I remember clearly Harold talking about was that sometime early in his career, he decided to set limits. That's that's not a very common missionary word, setting limits. And as I recall, basically, there were two guidelines. And Harold, correct me. One was... If I can't get the surgery done by 10 or 11, I probably should just do it tomorrow, most of the time. And the other is, between midnight and about 6 in the morning, I tell the nurses in the hospital, this is a, this is a hospital in Africa, if you can at all handle it without me, do so. So the reason Harold is still going at the speed he is after these years, one of them, besides his medal. And we all we usually attribute it to someone's mettle. You know, we admire the mettle of people. But I think it's because he was wise in figuring out early in his career how to live like a human being and how to persevere like a human being. Um, another person who I really admire who's uh, who's been a leader in mental health and missions is Marjorie Foyle. Uh, Marjorie is a woman from the U.K. who served in India for, I think, 30 years, and then after she retired, served another 20 or 30 years uh, visiting missionaries and supporting them and studying them with their permission in terms of stress and so forth. I remember sitting at one of these mental health and missions conferences with her one time, and again, Marjorie wrote her doctor. She was a physician. She wrote her Ph.D. research thesis at age 70 after she retired. Uh, So she's one of these people with metal. She walked our legs off when we visit her in London one time. We couldn't keep up with her. But I remember sitting at a table with her, saying, I asked her, Marjorie, how do you do this? How do you keep going? And she said, holidays. You must do holidays. Now you laugh, but that's a critical part of how do I persevere in this excessively demanding environment that I work in. Um, and again, unfortunately, as this slide says, we, we sometimes reward chronic self-destructive behavior rather than uh, try to hold people accountable for it. Now, these are the burnout symptoms. I don't have to dwell on them a long time, but basically the question you know, one of the best uh, papers on this was Wendell Freist in the Taiwan Missionary Quarterly in 1996. And I've, I'm, with his permission from the journal, ha- have uh, used some of this. But basically, how many of these symptoms would you see are God's will for his children doing his work? Uh, again, these slides are going to be posted on the website, so you don't have to panic and try to write everything down because I'm going to move uh I'm not going to rely on slides the whole time. But negativity and cynicism. uh, I saw that as a kid in the missionary community I grew up in. Uh, I saw it as an adult going back to some degree and work in a hospital where I was born for a while. Uh, Sometimes we say, well, that's just that person's personality. They're just kind of a negative person or they're just kind of sarcastic. Uh, You know, they, they just are distant people, and maybe they have been. Maybe that's the way they were when they were 20, but a lot of people become this way over a long period of distress. That is, their, their demands exceeding the supply of energy and resources. And here's, here's the next 16. Short fuse, lots of physical ailments, blaming others, inappropriate guilt, just hanging on Um, I've already mentioned this, but I wanted to highlight it in terms of my opinion. And I guess I'm interested in getting the opinion of those of you here who've had a lot of experience with this as well is restoration from getting to that state takes years. And, um, one of the challenges, I think, of North American mission sending agencies is to figure out how to recognize that without feeling like people are playing the system, you know, surely they're well enough to go back. They're just buying some time by complaint. You know, you've heard those kind of things. And there are people that do that. That's the trouble. You know, there, there, there are some who do that. But the vast majority of people who aren't ready to go back aren't ready to go back. And it's because they haven't healed. And uh, if you think about it, if somebody, um, somebody gets down to 40% in their tank and they get it back up to 70%, they may, be, they may be good to go. But after two or three years, they're back down to 30%. And then every time it refills, it doesn't refill all the way if all you do is demand and give and demand and give and demand and give. Uh, In the 1970s, uh, Dorothy Gish did some of the first missionary stress work and number one in her list was confronting other missionaries, primarily missionaries, though nationals. That was the greatest stress. Uh, Others, as you see, were, uh, were there, but less intense. Down to... The Avalanche of Change, which is those of you that have done re-entry from working in really uh, resource-limited areas know what that is in terms of heading back in here where there are 50 different kinds of bread to choose from, and you get stunned when you start to walk down the aisle. Uh, Too many choices. Now, uh, Marjorie did her study, and basically in the 90s, what she... um, What she came up with was the stresses were the same, but they ranked differently. Uh, Adjustment disorders were related to occupation, children, home country, and so forth, but primary affective disorders weren't. And what's interesting is that there were significant somatic symptoms in both of these groups. It works both ways. Uh, I think there's some degree of generational change in how this is manifest. In my generation, my parents' generation, depression, sinful, not something Christians do. I just really have bad headaches and I can't get out of bed, and I don't have any appetite, and I can't sleep, and I I'm so discouraged. All, you can run down the depression symptoms and we, would, we do physical symptoms or other symptoms for them. I think there's a generational change in which people are more open to recognizing this is a clinical syndrome that has a name, has a pathophysiology, has a known natural history, and has a known set of interventions. But what Marjorie found out was occupational stress was number one in the 1990s, and other things fell below that. And the things that were stressful occupationally, if you think about it, are things that are particularly important to medical cross-cultural workers. The overload. How do you set limits? How do you say no? Either the technology is racing ahead of me or I'm so frustrated because I can't keep the technology up with me. Those are both extremes that people struggle with. And in many places... uh, even in large urban areas where people serve, there's professional isolation. And if you've if you've been overseas, you come back, you you practice with a group of people, you realize. I think, uh, I mean, sometimes it's not so good, but most time you realize what you missed about having colleagues around who are sharing the same kind of problems. You can tap somebody on the shoulder and say, you know, what would you do with this? Or you know, this really is puzzling me. Uh, peer review, a lot of those things are very, very missing in a lot of places where people, even large urban areas, are working isolation from other professionals. Um, Working relationships, Marjorie found to be quite a big part of the problems again, not necessarily conflict, but sorting out a healthy relationship uh, both with leadership and with colleagues. Now, That's not that much different than where I work in Rochester, frankly. It's just, I think, amplified and intensified when you have more limited choices. If you're out in the middle of somewhere and you're stuck with these five people and you don't have many choices, then that really is a much more intense kind of difficulty than if you're where you have options, which most people in this country feel like they do. Uh, Dual career families... Marital stress, these are some of the highlights that Marjorie found. Loneliness among singles. And then reentry stress. Uh, One of the important conclusions from her study, which, again, I think is one of the few good studies out there about us, about you, uh, is that if you have a family history of major depression and you've experienced a major depression, you have the highest risk of experiencing it in your service. And simply being aware of that and making plans for how to deal with that can save an immense amount of pain and suffering. Uh, Without without doing that, in my mind, it's similar to taking a brittle diabetic and sending them to Cameroon, where they're 50 miles from a refrigerator. Uh, Unfortunately, isn't it true now that essentially all insulin is refrigerated insulin? Is that true, those of you that work around the world? So um, it didn't used to be that way, right? Porcine insulin didn't have to be refrigerated. So the modern technologic developments have made it much, much harder to put people with certain problems in more isolated circumstances. Now the last piece of information I wanted to share is the most recent. The CMDA-CMDE Commission... Uh, commissioned some research among those who attended our conference with their consent. Uh, and basically we we were trying to find out what is medical missions like these days. We haven't had a good understanding of what medical missions experience is like. This is a very long survey. I'm not going to go into detail now. I'm, it's uh, worth discussing in great depth in different circumstances, but these are the things that they identified from I think it was three to five hundred people who responded uh, as the main challenges to medical missions work. Not enough qualified workers. So what does what does my working in a context with not enough qualified workers usually mean? It means I'm picking it up. Or I'm stuffing my frustration with someone who's not qualified doing something that really is not up to par. Uh, what about cooperation with system bureaucracy and other systems? Uh, that, again, I'd, I'd like to see heads nodding if you've experienced that, but I see some heads nodding from many of you. Uh, that actually can can be a major hindrance. and It's not something necessarily that you get trained in before you go uh, and you're Pre-field preparation. Uh, money or equipment, that's nothing new. Uh, lack of strategy. It's interesting that at least the missionaries we surveyed, not all of whom attend our conference, we had other, others participated, said that one of the biggest stresses they have is their sending organizations don't even know what to do with medical missions or have a strategy. It's kind of like, we're glad for you to go do it, but in terms of what do we want it to look like in three years, five years, and ten years, there's not a strategy to help you uh, strategize, which c- includes, you know, the lack of support and the, the lack of uh, plan for sustainability. Um, those were the most important challenges in rank order that came out of the survey we did in 2010. And the same group, 50% of those that responded said that sometime in their career, they had experienced anxiety at a four out of five, or five out of five. That is, if zero is none and five is, is the worst anxiety you can experience, half of the, half of the group surveyed said they have been there. Now, we didn't, it was a long survey, we didn't find out how long, how frequently, was it just one panic attack when you were stuck in the back of an airplane like I had one time, or was it ongoing? But the implication was that significant high levels of anxiety can occur, do occur, and can have an impact. They suck the energy and wind out of you. The same survey we found that about 30% have had a depression at four out of five. Okay, Four or five out of five, as bad as you can imagine depression being. 30% of our medical missionaries we surveyed. Uh, That's about twice the population basis in the United States. So you are vulnerable. And uh, unless you understand that vulnerability ahead of time and do something about it, this is the kind of thing that can really suck the energy and productivity out of you. Now, two more things I wanted to talk about from uh, Wendell Freist that I think are helpful I hope we're helpful to you, both in understanding yourself and in people that you work with, uh, what he called missionary personality types. So his type A isn't our, it's somewhat our type A personality, but again, self worth based on achievement. Always in a hurry, multitasking, over planning, I never can get enough done, chronically worried, frustrated, never good enough. Um, -I think it's hard not to be that way if you're in a place where people are really, really sick and you feel like if you don't do something, something really bad is going to happen. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's some underlying assumptions here that probably need to be talked about and challenged uh, within yourselves and your organization if this is one of the things that's dragging you down. His Type B personality was the overgiver. Not the over-server, not the overachiever, but the over-giver. And I think most of us who do uh, medical work actually have substantial parts of both of those in our personalities. We do it because we want to give. We love people. We want to serve them. We want to help them. And we also want to do it right. We want to do all of it right all the time. Um, As he said, neither is bad, but there's definitely risks that accompany those. And unfortunately, we tend to encourage that in other people. You know, it is true that if you want something done in your organization, you ask the person who gets stuff done who probably already is doing too much. And uh, if our organization is primarily task-oriented, that's a pattern that happens. Uh, And if our organization wants to have things that can be measured in order to have reports, so that we can report, etc. Then a task is something that can usually be measured. So there's kind of this built-in system that promotes this particular kind of kind of difficulty. And uh, uh, celebrating people who set limits is not a thing that many organizations or many of us do if we're in a really difficult working situation. Uh, this is depression. You all know the caps already if you've been to medical school at all. And the major risk is a family history, and it turns out, uh, exposure to adversity. The higher adversity exposure with a family history of depression, the higher probability of someone experiencing a significant clinical depression. Now I'm going to uh, get to the prevention here, and then we will should have plenty of time for questions. Uh, The first one is, at least in my mind, I think about this as the Adolf rule, and that is, remember, we're finite human beings. Uh, Even in a place where people are really upset with us for acknowledging we're finite human beings. Uh, God created us to need exercise, fellowship, food, relationship, worship, rest, uh, and even though some of us think we're this way, you know, John Woods, one of my favorite people, says, unfortunately, a lot of us consider ourselves to be M-deities instead of human beings. It's easy for us to get that mantle. Uh, recognize we're fallible and we're, we will blow it. Uh, interesting recent study of depression and stress among medical interns in the United States. The, the highest source of stress wasn't work hours, It wasn't conflict. It was feeling as if I blow it and somebody sees it, I'm toast. And yet, how realistic is that expectation from any of us? But we sort of project that. Um, Everyone else, no matter what they look like, is human. In fact, if if you look around, a lot of people are struggling. So he has a a theological uh, set of interventions. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, according to Martin Luther. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And Jesus was both the Son of God and the suffering servant. In fact, if you want to think, if you want to have a framework to tuck away for a model of how to live, Think about Jesus. Uh, he certainly gave himself. He certainly gave himself completely. Uh, but in in ways in which he had control over his his activities and his envir- environment, he took care of himself. He ate, went off to pray, he would rest, he would try to get away from the crowd so he could be with his disciples, Uh When we generate our own trouble, then I think we need to be held accountable for how we're going to deal with that. Scripture is full, you know, Romans 8.28 and all these uh, scriptures are full of the fact that stuff is going to happen to us if we're Christians. Uh, If we don't start out thinking that, if our expectation is stuff is not going to happen, we're going to be in big trouble because the difference dissatisfaction is a difference between expectations and reality. And instead of entering life, entering professional life, missionary life, expecting that stuff is going to happen and recognizing that that's not what the bottom line is. It's not the stuff that happens. Uh, I can't remember the whole list, but remember sword, nakedness, what's the whole list? Uh, and somehow we're conquerors in the middle of that? Well, we're obviously not conquerors by escaping that or by it never happening. The conquering is, is when we know that that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Now, if in, a, in my mind the love of Christ means I'm not hurting, then I'm in trouble with these scriptures. If the love of Christ means that I'm not suffering, my family's not going to suffer, stuff is not going to go wrong, Everything's going to be fine. Uh, I think that's misunderstanding the Scripture as opposed to what the love of Christ really means, which you got to decide for yourself. I think Scripture tells us a lot about that. So I'm going to stop here. Uh, again, both of these uh, move from a slave modality to a daughter-son modality and get back to the slave modality without losing the child modality. That's the tension that I started out talking about. We're going to live in circumstances where uh, doing everything exactly the way it needs to be done is not going to happen. So what do we do about that? And how do we find a way to thrive for our careers rather than just survive? And I know at the CMDA conferences, I find it very sad when often, as kind of one of the camp counselors, I listen to people who really are just barely surviving. You know, uh, some will say, if this conference weren't coming up, I've heard this five times at one conference. If I didn't know this conference was coming up, I was going to kill myself. Medical missionaries who are very devoted followers of Christ. Uh, How do we let each other get to that point? Or how do we let ourselves get to that point? And I think that's my challenge for you is to figure out in this context of the realities of the things that life puts in front of us. What do I have control over? And what do I do about those things I have control over? I don't have any control over whether the government will give me a license or not or closes down my hospital or not or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I do have control over whether I get some sleep at night and whether I preserve time for worship, whether I spend time with my family, whether I realize, you know, sometimes we're not going to see all 300 patients in the clinic today. It's not going to happen. But that's a very individual thing that I think each person has to come to terms with for themselves. So I'm going to stop there and ask you to engage because I... a number of people in there who have a lot more wisdom than I do about this, and uh, pitch in and what your thoughts are about dealing with dealing and preventing burnout and depression. Or questions. And if I can't answer it, I'll find somebody here who can, because I know some people here who probably can. Yes, sir. The
1: question I have is distinguishing the difference between
0: just simply working hard or the person that can work hard without the stress
1: I suppose the person that's working hard but under the duress and stress. I mean, as I look at Paul in the
0: Bible, he looks like he was somebody that, was, you know, none of us could keep up with Paul, but yet it was
1: how he was managing or handling that work. That's a question. I'm not trying to make a statement. I'm
0: trying to put no? that as a question. So the question for the recording, because they want to hear what people have to say, is,
1: is there a way
0: to distinguish between uh, someone who is thriving, working hard, under a great deal of stress, and someone who's not? Is that a reasonable <laughs> is, way to reframe it? the person. Just because this person has, is working real hard, but...
1: They, he or she may be very healthy emotionally in that situation and have another another person almost doing the same task but yet doing it under a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, identifying the difference between
0: yeah. the two. So are there, are there any uh, straightforward, simple ways? Actually, Tate Shanafelt is a hemock guy at the clinic who I work with. I've known him as a resident who has looked at stress among Doctors in general in this country. And, you know, there are these long stress inventories and burnout inventories. And he came up actually after doing some comparative studies with basically two questions. And one is, uh, am I thinking negatively about my patients? When I start to think negatively about the people I serve, that's a big red flag. And the other is when I start negatively to think about my colleagues. Uh, Those seem to be, in terms of specificity, sensitivity, statistical stuff, to be about as good as the long surveys that we do. Uh, So just that turn, and it can be a simple attitudinal change. And sometimes like I said, sometimes we think, Well that's you know, this person's probably been negative since they came out of the womb and that's just the way they are, but you have to guess second guess that sometime, I think. Yes, sir. Or yes, ma'am. Yeah, good question. So, how do you determine when, if somebody has been brought home to heal, when they're refilled enough? Um, the way that I've done it is by having a long term relationship with them during the recovery. I don't know how a person does it whose job it is to do pre field exams and say, you know, blood pressure is fine, pulse is fine, blood sugars. I don't know how you do that as well. Most people can tell you unless they've gotten so burned out that they're just looking for a way not to have to ever go back. And I think identifying that is important. There are some people who have a really, really hard time saying, you know, that was that. It's time for me to move on. And sometimes people need help with that. Um, but, again, the, if, if the symptoms are gone usually, I think the symptoms usually go away in 6 to 12 months. But I think it takes again on average a couple of years for people to be restored. Poppy, what do you think? You've you've been involved in looking at this. I I
1: agree with you. Sometimes you do just think of a lady who broke down and the husband wanted to stay on the field and she just couldn't do it. And Saw a couple of years later, actually in Australia, and he was blossoming. It just takes time.
0: No. Yeah. Sometimes the removal of the stress, you make it. Yeah. So if you couldn't hear what Poppy said, she said, "takes takes time and removal of the stress, long enough for healing to take place." You now, it's I think a little, a little. They're not some good, not good medical examples, but if you have somebody who has a real bad sunburn and they're almost okay, but you do this again a little bit, you know, it's going to take them that much longer. And even after after the skin is healed, it's pretty sensitive for a while. At least for me, I have to get to know the person well enough to have a sense that their resilience is returned. There's a huge uh, literature on resilience now, which I'm starting to learn and study, but uh, I think think there aren't, I don't know of any good tests. that You can say you can jump over four foot six now and you're good to go. I don't really know. Maybe others have good ideas about that. Yes? To advance your thought on margin, I should add the fact that I felt the
1: need of getting away from one month every five months, which is something that most people would think was very simple.
0: But I found that's the only doctor at our house, hospital, the only way that I could keep going. So for those that couldn't hear what Dr. Harold Adolph said was he found that in order to keep going well he needed to be gone one month every five months. And of course some people think that's sinful or, what, or why would you do that? Well here's an example of why you do that. You're still here, still going strong. So. You had a question over here, sir. Yeah, so, um... I, I don't know of anyone that studied that. I don't know if any of the rest of you know about that. I think, I mean, that's you know, part of part of the question is uh, does our faith and the Holy Spirit's power enable us to do that which is far beyond what our bodies are designed to do longer? I mean, is that sort of how the question is phrased or maybe I'm not phrasing it quite and I, I guess I don't know the answer to that I I my my opinion is that that dynamic in, may more often enable us to acknowledge our humanness rather than try to be superhuman but you know, yes ma'am in the back Well, thank you. I don't have a good way to summarize that, but I hope most people heard that point. I I think it's something that every person sorts out somewhat differently for themselves. Um, We're all fallible. We're all broken. We're not going to do it perfectly, Um, but if they're... And what, one of the things about working in a huge institution like I do is you realize that you are expendable and not that we are expendable in God's work, but uh, am I necessary am I necessary for God to get this job done? And I think sometimes we get stuck in that. that well, I'm the only one here. So, obviously, I'm the one that's necessary to get this done. Instead of, no, oh, this is God's work. He's got me here. And he probably wants me here for the next five or ten years. So, how am I going to do that, knowing myself and my limits and so forth? Our time is really up, but and you're free to go. But if you have other questions, did you have a thought? Yeah, or?
1: I have one. It's, it'll be short. Um, I'm extremely type A myself. So, I'm trying to imagine any burnout? How you would tell them if you're working too hard need to set limits? Because I know I wouldn't respond to that well. So I'm trying to think of how, like in a team, a mission team, how you would approach
0: someone. Well, the question is how do you approach someone who you suspect is having a problem and they don't see it? Which is unfortunately the nature of almost all of us all the time. That's why we need other people. But uh, it, if, it's, if there are significant burnout symptoms, they usually can be documented, and a way in which somebody can, see, you know, conversations are great, but a lot of times seeing something in black and white, well, I'm able to see it. My defenses get around. So, you know, if if my colleague is willing to say, you know, you've really been hypercritical of this nurse or that intern, or whatever, and uh, a number of those things, and to say I'm worried about you. Now, again, because being vulnerable is not a strong suit for many human beings, we don't take that well. But unless you try, nobody's going to ever have an opportunity to consider and reflect on it. So, you have other ideas since you say you're one how could somebody deal with you better slap you around is that the way you do it so uh, thank you for coming there's another session or dinner or something starting uh it i'm told that there's a place i can go and post my slides
1: medicalmissions.com
0: medicalmissions.com and i'll take your evaluation for Evaluations at either door, please.